The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Neuroscientists have concluded there is no convincing function to be found for consciousness. But if so, why are we conscious? Has evolution got something seriously wrong if consciousness is a mere byproduct of being human? Do we need a new account of consciousness and how it fits into our model of the universe? And is it possible that consciousness itself is leading us astray? Joining us to debate whether consciousness evolved are famed cognitive psychologist Donald Hoffman, celebrated psychiatrist and former literary scholar Ian McGilchrist, trailblazing evolutionary theorist and geneticist Eva Jablonka, and pioneering philosopher of consciousness Michelle Montague. I'll now hand you over to our host for this debate, Robert Lawrence Kuhn. Welcome to IAI's The Dawn of Consciousness. I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn. I'm the creator and host of Closer to Truth, a long-running series on public television in the U.S., extensive website and YouTube channel where we discuss cosmos consciousness and meaning. Closer to Truth is pleased to collaborate with the Institute of Arts and Ideas. Is consciousness the pure product of physical brain, the materialist view of most neuroscientists? Or is consciousness radically different from the physical material world something fundamental in deep reality. We're going to subject theories of consciousness to the stress test of evolution. What's the relationship between consciousness and evolution? Views clash. Some say consciousness is an inevitable outcome of evolution. Others that consciousness is a mere accident of evolution, perhaps with survival benefits, or perhaps so incidental that it is not much needed at all. Do we need a new account of consciousness and how it fits into our model of the universe? And do we need a new account of evolution to explain the enigma of consciousness? We have a terrific panel, alphabetically now, by first name. Donald Hoffman is a cognitive psychologist at the University of California, Irvine. His most recent book, The Case Against Reality, argues that what we perceive through our senses is not the material real world. Eva Jablanka is an evolutionary theorist and geneticist at Tel Aviv University. She advocates an extended evolutionary synthesis that goes well beyond DNA sequencing. Ian McGilchrist is a psychiatrist, former liter literary scholar, and author of the books The Master and His Emissary, The Divided Brain in the Making of the Western World, and The Matter with Things, his recent book, Our Brains, Our Delusions, and the Unmaking of the World. Michelle Montague is a philosopher of mind at the University of Texas at Austin, who focuses on conscious perception, emotion, and thought with special attention to cognitive phenomenology. So now, can evolution explain consciousness? Begin with Michelle. Hi, thanks for having me. So I'm going to assume that the sense of consciousness that we're concerned with in this debate is simply what philosophers sometimes call qualia, the qualitative phenomenological what it's likeness of experience. Consciousness is what it's like to feel pain, to hear the rustling of leaves. It's what it's like to hold a mouse in one's hand, in Iris Murdoch's words. This, and in any case, is what I will be concerned with. Was there ever a dawn of consciousness understood in this sense? I think the answer must be no. Consciousness did not dawn. It didn't dawn in the sense that there were things existing, but there was no consciousness around, and then poof, it began to exist. To think that consciousness only came to, onto the scene when neural activity 
reached a certain level of organizational complexity is to commit oneself to a highly implausible metaphysics. It's to posit a profoundly non-naturalistic breach in nature. I can't put the point better than William James. We need, he says, and I quote, to try every possible mode of conceiving the dawn of consciousness so that it may not appear equivalent to the eruption into the universe of a new nature, non-existent until then. Merely to call consciousness nascent will not serve our turn. It is true that the world signifies not yet born and so seems to form a sort of bridge between existence and non-entity, but that is a verbal quibble. The fact is that discontinuity comes in if a new nature comes in at all. The quantity of the latter is quite immaterial. The girl in Captain Marriott's play, Mr. Midshipman Easy, could not excuse the illegitimacy of her child by saying it was a very small one. And consciousness, however small, is an illegitimate birth in any philosophy that starts without it, and yet professes to explain all facts by continuous evolution. If evolution is to work smoothly, consciousness in some shape must have been present at the very origin of things. Accordingly, we find that the more clear-sighted evolutionary philosophers are beginning to posit it there. Well, that was in 1890, and James wasn't the first to make the point. If consciousness is real, and of course it is, then it must somehow be there from the start. Evolution can then account for all its rich developments. Thank you. Ian? Yes, well, I would resonate with very much that uh, Michelle has said. The so-called hard problem of consciousness is as hard as you set it up to be. In its most common form, there are two aspects to its hardness, how and why. If you set it up as deriving consciousness from matter utterly devoid of any form of consciousness, you have a sizable problem on your hands, to say the least. And consciousness would indeed be puzzling if it were some kind of pointless readout from an internal dashboard, because it would have no adaptive function. Behind this view, however, lies the assumption that it is an adaptation arising in the higher mammals, possibly in humans. However, I don't believe consciousness is confined to higher mammals, and I don't think it is an adaptation. To cut a long story short, I suggest it is an ontological primitive, and that it is part of the creative nature of the cosmos. It has not originated from absolute unconsciousness by some evolutionary miracle, but given that the universe is in evolution, and given consciousness, it has evolved over time to take the form it does in humans. Consciousness is nothing to our purposes. We are to the purposes of consciousness. Eva, I hope you will differ. Uh, yes, just... I beg to differ. I think that evolution can explain consciousness. However, uh, both terms consciousness and explain are a little bit difficult. So I want to say something about it. First of all, I agree with Michelle uh, with her characterization of consciousness. It is qualia, it is uh, uh, something like seeing red, it's feeling like thirst, joy, and pain, and it's uh, co uh, cognitive uh, processes like, uh, like remembering, for example. And it feels like, uh, like something to be such a system, uh, uh, an experiencing system. I use the term consciousness to mean subjective experiencing. Now, it's very, very difficult to define consciousness. Uh, there is a list of capacities that consciousness researchers would generally regard as jointly sufficient for a, uh, for a system uh, being regarded as, uh, as conscious, as a subject with a point of view on the world in its own body. And this includes uh, uh, capacities such as global accessibility and broadcast, unification and differentiation of percepts, integration of information over time, attentional skills, flexible value system, intentionality, a sense of self, if we found a, a being like that with these capacities on a different planet, most of us would assume that it is conscious in the sense that I'm talking about, that it is, that it has actually subjective experiences, that it is feeling something. Now, this is a very demanding list, the list that I gave. So what we did, me and uh, my, my friend Simona Ginsburg, with whom I developed this uh, approach, this evolutionary approach, is to search for a, uh, for a single positive marker that requires the existence of a system with all the capacities that I just uh, talked about. After much searching, we found one uh, capacity 
that is a good marker of such a system. It is a distinctive type of domain general associative learning, a, learn a type of learning that is generative, open-ended, representational, recursive, and value flexible. And we called it uh, unlimited associative learning, UAL. Uh, we argued that it is a marker of the evolutionary transition from non-conscious to conscious mode of being. Once we have this kind of, uh, kind of capacity, we have evidence that the major evolutionary transition that we are interested in, the transition to consciousness, has gone to completion. And once we identified the marker, which is obviously unlimited associative learning, is obviously uh, highly adaptive. Once we, uh, once we identify it, we can follow its evolution. And this is uh, just as life emerged as the outcome of chemical evolution uh, of the coupled mechanism that underlie replication and metabolism and closure. So we argue unlimited associative learning uh, is the outcome of the evolution of unlimited associative learning and is constituted by the processes that enable it. Don? Uh, we see a world of tables and chairs, rocks and trees, stars and planets, brains and neurons. It's natural to guess on evolutionary grounds that our perceptions are, in the normal case, accurate. After all, those of our predecessors who saw reality more accurately would be more fit than those who saw it less accurately, and thus they would be more, be more likely to pass on their genes that coded for the more accurate perceptions. However, evolution by natural selection is now a mathematically precise theory. We don't have to guess. We can use the tools of evolutionary game theory to prove theorems. It turns out that our guess is false. Instead, it turns out that the very language of objects in space and time is simply the wrong language to describe objective reality, whatever that reality might be. Space, time, and its objects are not fundamental reality. Physicists such as Nima Arkani Hamed have found the same result. Quantum field theory and Einstein's theory of gravity together entail that space time is doomed. It is not fundamental. Neither are its particles. The ontology of space time and methodology of reductionism are doomed. So the story that consciousness is a consequence of an evolutionary process involving objects in space-time is contradicted by a theorem of evolution by natural selection. Tables and chairs, brains and neurons are simply icons that our senses construct to guide adaptive action. We'll stop. We construct them and delete them as needed. Neurons do not exist when they are not perceived. So neural activity cannot possibly generate consciousness. So can evolution explain consciousness? Evolution explains that our standard way of framing this question misunderstands the theory of evolution itself. Okay, thank you everyone. Uh, now we're gonna begin our themes. We have much to cover, so please keep responses concise. Our first theme, is consciousness something fundamentally different from the physical material world? And as I've just heard you, three of you think it is. And so what we will want to do is to dig into your reasoning behind it, other than making some generalized statements. And then we want to ask, how can evolution contribute to the debate? So I'm going to start with Eva, because you have a different view. That, uh, and in your work, uh, you have enlarged our understanding of the ways and means of evolution. Um, but your claim is that none of this expansion undermines the wholly physical nature of consciousness. Is that right? Yes, it is. I think that consciousness okay. is explainable in scientific terms, just in the same way that life is uh, explainable in scientific terms. Now, consciousness, like life, is an activity. It's a, it's a process. And but just as life emerged as the outcome of the chemical evolution, of chemical evolution, and is the, and is the product of coupled mechanisms that underlie replication, that underlie metabolism, that un underlie the formation of uh, uh, membranes that allow uh, with selective permeability and so on. So consciousness emerges as an outcome of the evolution of, we claim, of a certain kind of domain general learning, what we call un unlimited associative learning, and it is constituted just as life is constituted by the scaffold processes, so consciousness is constituted by the processes that build up this uh, capacity for uh, unlimited associative learning. So, Don, uh, you, you think that's unnecessary, right? You have consciousness as fundamental, uh, but then how, how do you handle evolution? Because you're sort of 
not dismissing particles, fields, all the the, the hard uh, sciences um, in order to have your consciousness as fundamental. But then why is evolution a part of your process? Well, so the, the way I look at these things is that what we do as scientists is take our best theories and look at their implications. So our best theories right now are evolution with natural selection and also quantum field theory and gravity. And these, these theories speak with a uniform voice. Space-time is not fundamental. It could not be fundamental. Those theory, so our best scientific theories themselves are telling us that space-time is not fundamental. So there's got to be a deeper story. There's something beyond space-time. And, and physicists, by the way, are finding very interesting structures, amplitohedron, uh, cosmological polytopes. These structures actually explain the data inside space and time, but they have no notion of space and time, not even any notion of um, Hilbert spaces. So there's no quantum theory. So there, so what we're going to find is that we have to have a deeper theory beyond space and time. When we project it into space and time, it will look like evolution by natural selection. It will look like quantum field theory and, and gravity. So, so this is the, the framework in which I'm thinking about consciousness may be that deeper story. Yeah, and, and your view is, is, um, uh, is perhaps a view that seems like a majority in this pl a panel, but it is not a majority of, of even the physicists. You state something that is as if it's a fact, and of course, most physicists would not agree with what, what you said. Uh, they might have string theory, they might argue something else from which space-time emerged. Some, in fact, do think time is is fundamental. There are differences of opinion, but um, the large majority of physicists would not have consciousness as, as fundamental below that. They don't know what sure. string theory being one, 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 one example. Uh, Ian, uh, your uh, critical work on a hemispheric perspective of the brain, which you use to explain human sentience in a, in a very engaging and, and comprehensive way, uh, does that perspective give you the capacity to shine a new light on consciousness. You, you see consciousness as fundamental in some sense, but has your hemispheric perspective enhanced that view? It doesn't um, aim to account for the origins of consciousness at all. It's just outlining the difference of the world that comes to attention in two hemispheres, each of which pays radically different attention to the world. It stands to reason that these worlds would have different characteristics, and they do indeed have different characteristics. Where I go with this information, I have this new book, The Matter with Things, is in the first part of the book I establish, I think beyond any shadow of doubt, that the left hemisphere is only good at helping us manipulate, but doesn't really understand the big picture. The right hemisphere does. Now, when you come forward to what are the building blocks of the cosmos, I look at things like coincidence of opposites, um, the one and the many, time, space, matter, uh, values, in fact, uh, purpose and the sense of the sacred. I think all these are part of the, the, the business of the cosmos. What one gets is one can see what kind of a take on the world the left hemisphere would be likely to produce and what kind of a take the right hemisphere would produce. And in the first part of the book, we have already established that when it has the characteristic imprint of the left hemisphere's take on reality, it is less likely to be veridical. That is a step forward in philosophy because we don't have to just shrug shoulders. We can say, actually, this one is very likely to be one we ought to be skeptical of. And I'm, in terms of um, the time thing, I, I, I absolutely wouldn't accept myself that uh, physicists say that uh, time and space don't exist. I, I, you know, as you yourself said, that I think most physicists would say it's extraordinarily important. Certainly, Lee Smolin wrote a whole book about it, which I found very convincing. And I don't know quite how you can actually have a view of this without using space and time. I mean, how on earth can uh, uh, Donald himself uh, deal with this? Because he's only got his own brain working within space and time to do that. Yeah. Just to push the point, uh, so each hemisphere, left and right, has its own center of consciousness because, you know, split brain experiments, you have two senses of consciousness and they can not know one another, right? So, so there are, you have consciousness in, in each hemisphere. That's right. But in the normal state of affairs, they're not isolated from one another. They can talk to one another. A lot of the... 
A lot of the, exactly, but only two percent of neurons actually cross the corpus callosum, and a lot of the traffic across the corpus callosum is in fact inhibitory in effect. Um, there are reasons, evolutionary good reasons, why all creatures that we know have asymmetrical neural nets going right back seven hundred million years to Nematocella vectensis, the oldest creature we know that has a neural net that is the ancestor of our brain, and it's already asymmetrical. And the reason is simply that all creatures have to. Um, have to deal with a conundrum, which is how do you grab things in order, you know, basically eat and stay alive? Because while you're busy attending to that detail, you're not looking out for predators. So there is a part of us that is on the lookout and there's a part that is grabbing something. And the left hemisphere has this limited view. It's not actually very intelligent compared with the right hemisphere. Uh, speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's interesting evidence that you know when you look at the brain scans of people who lost intelligence after a stroke, practically all the the places in the brain that are affected are in the right hemisphere, not in the left. I mean, that's itself interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, some of that is is controversial. But once again, your sense of consciousness is is a deeper. Uh, a sense. It's not based on the hemispheric analysis because there's consciousness in, in both hemispheres. So your sense that consciousness is is fundamental, it, it is not reducible to the physical brain it, it, entirely, although dependent obviously on the physical brain, um, it is, is motivated by just a deeper internal intuition. No, it's, it's, it's mediated by a number of things, by the sort of argument very well put out by Michel from, um, uh, from William James, that this is not like any other kind of emergence, and it's, it's basically saying, grant me a miracle, um, which would be one that would have to be um, taking place billions of, time, billions of times every year because of babies being born, going from a nothing to something that's conscious. But I'm more interested in the fact that the complexity theory doesn't hold water. There are very, very complex networks. The cerebellum has four times as many neurons as the cerebrum, the, the, the bit of the brain we think of as our brain. Cerebellum has four times as many neurons, and some of them make very prolific connections, like the Purkinje cells. And yet you cannot sustain consciousness with that complex. And you can have at the other end, people with almost no brain at all um, called um, Hydran encephaly, and they're they're capable of of carrying out remarkable um, feats that depend for most of us on consciousness. Yeah, um, my my older brother who died at, at five was hydrocephalic, so I'm very familiar with that uh, from from stories my parents tell me. So I, I really appreciate that. That's that's a a, a significant uh, a point. Um, how does your approach to consciousness differ from what you heard from, from Don's uh, consciousness fundamental kind of a fundamental idealism? Well, I think Donald and I agree, I, I believe, in the fact that we think it's an ontological primitive. We can't get behind it, beyond it to make it. Um, <clears throat> there, are two, there are two ways you can approach that. One is an ontological primitive as uh, a component of reality, and the other is that it is the fundamental reality and everything else is derivative from it. Well, I don't know how one could know that one way or the other. One would have to keep an open mind on it, actually. Okay, that, that, that's that's fair answer. Michelle, um, what is distinctive? I want you to go into your work about conscious uh, thought, uh, and particularly what you call cognitive phenomenology. Uh, others do. Of course, you have focused on that. How can that help, especially as cognitive phenomenology extends beyond sensory phenomenology? I don't know. If, well, first, can I just say that nothing I said um, is in conflict with a physicalist position about consciousness. So saying that consciousness is fundamental does not mean that it's not physical. It does mean that science itself might not be able to capture the tr everything there is to say about consciousness. But that's, you know, that's another matter. Yeah, well, I, I, I would take issue with that, because if something is entirely physical, the way we define physical, we can. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's the question. And science may not be able to do it now, but uh, in principle, however long it might take, should be able to. If you're saying that, con that, that consciousness is physical, but science in principle cannot uh, ever access its, its, its fundamental essence, 
I, I think that's an incompatible statement. Well, I'm saying insofar as we understand the methodology of science right now and how it functions and the fact that science studies causes and effects and patterns, it will never tell us about the intrinsic nature of the physical, which is what we might think consciousness is. It's an intrinsic, you know, sort of to have a conscious experience is to have something intrinsic. And since science will never tell us about the intrinsic nature of the physical. So nothing I've said. Now, if that, 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 that's a, a statement about the methodology of science right now. So I don't take anything that I've said to be in conflict with being a physicalist. Okay. So that, that I just wanted to add that. Um, that's an important that, distinction for sure. Yeah. Uh, so, so your claim is that consciousness is a component of physical reality, but physicalist means that the physical world, material world, that is the only reality. That's what it means, right? Well, so, it's a, yeah, it's a fundamental reality and it's physical. And it's just and that, it, you know, science might not, science can't tell us about that. It can tell us some things, but it can't tell, it can us, tell about us now or can't tell us ever. Well, I think in principle, it looks like the way science works, it can't tell us. So it might be in principle, put it that way. Okay, so uh, how does anybody else feel about that? I feel that. <laughs> well, it, I, I feel that uh, we're not talking about exactly about the same thing, because uh, if we're talking about qualia and we're talking about feelings and we're talking about perception and we're talking about this thing, surely my cup of tea does not feel and does not have perceptions and so on. Maybe it is made of some material, of, of some physical uh, stuff that has the potential for uh, being organized in this kind of way. That is fine. But, uh, but, but this does not mean that this organization is, uh, that it is the organization. It is, uh, it is not just this, uh, the, it's, it is the organization that matters here in the same way that in, with life, it is the organization of chemical and physical entities that creates something that we call a living being. Yeah. So I think we're talking about different things. When I'm talking about consciousness, I'm talking about creatures that feel, that perceive, that cognize. And this is a subset of the beings uh, that I'm aware that uh, exist on this planet or anywhere else. Michelle, and, this, I want to and this is what I'm interested in. How did this kind of organization come into being? And I think that evolutionary theory can tell us how it happened. M Michelle, get back to the distinction between cognitive phenomenology and sensory phenomenology, and does that does that inform your sense of what consciousness is? It definitely informs what uh, my sense of consciousness because it just expands the notion of consciousness beyond sensory episodes, which many many philosophers and scientists restrict it to. But clearly, thought is conscious, and there's something it's like to think that the moon is rising and the sun is setting. And so, cognitive phenomenology is just the idea that there's a what it's likeness that's associated with thoughts and even emotions and even perceptions, because perceptions aren't just colors and shapes. We perceive a bird as a bird. And so you, you introduce cognition and concepts in order to capture what that perception is like and what thought is like. Okay, uh, consciousness certainly has a spectrum of radically different explanations, and evolution may act as the kind of touchstone for each. So now, theme two, if evolution plays a role in consciousness, does this mean that consciousness provides a survival benefit? And could the same behaviors be selected without consciousness? Uh, Don, you see consciousness as uh, being a mechanism which can determine fitness payoffs, right? Well, actually not. So, so I think that from the point of view that I've been talking about, space-time isn't fundamental. So, and I, I propose instead that consciousness is fundamental. And we can have a mathematical model of consciousness that um, is, is so-called stationary. But when we project that model, uh, we will get um, time emerging as a projection, uh, an artifact. And so we will get something that looks like evolution. So, so in other words, when we say that space-time is doomed, when the physicists say this, like Neymar Kanyamed, Ed Witten, Nathan Seiberg, and, 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 and several others um, are saying that space-time is doomed, it's not fundamental. To be clear, I'm not sure they say it the way you're saying it, but you know, go ahead. Uh, uh, well, if, I mean, I, I can quote so, them, so... But the point is, 
that evolution is a consequence or a driver? I'm not. What, which, so, which so, so, yeah, I would say that evolution is a consequence of a deeper reality that's outside of space and time. So what, what we have from an evolutionary point of view is not a window on the truth. When, when I see the sun and the moon and the earth, I'm not seeing a window on reality. I'm just seeing a virtual reality headset that, I've, uh, that evolution has given me to survive long enough to reproduce. And that headset, any headset will, will simplify certain things um, and, and basically eliminate other information. So for example, the distinction that we make between living and non-living we think of that as a principal distinction. It's merely an artifact of the limitations of our particular evolved headset. And so, so that, that's not a fundamental distinction. Are you cascading into skepticism? A absolutely not. So, so I think that what I'm doing is I'm just saying we have to take our current best scientific theories very seriously. It's a theorem of both, of both evolution by natural selection and quantum field theory with gravity that space-time does not make sense as fundamental reality. That's just a theorem of our, best, of our best current science. And so, as a scientist, I have to take our current theories very seriously. They don't tell us what's outside of space-time. All they tell us is that, for example, the physicists know that beyond 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, space-time has no operational meaning. There, there is nothing that you can make operational about and 10 to the minus 43 seconds. And what they're finding are these deep structures beyond space-time that have symmetries, that, like the amplitudehedron, it has symmetries that are true of the data of scattering and okay. cannot be seen in space-time. Uh, even if, if I give you all of that, which I don't, but if I give you all of that, what, uh, what, is, the, what is the relationship between consciousness and, and evolution? I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to determine okay. which, which drives the other in, in, in your worldview. Well, so in my worldview, consciousness would be fundamental, and there's a dynamics of consciousness that need not be a, uh, that has no entropic time. But when you take the, the, the model I'm working on with my team is that when we take this, this dynamics of consciousness that has no entropic time, the, the entropy is constant. But when you take any projection of it, then you get as an artifact of the projection, the illusion of, well, you get an increasing entropy in that projection of the dynamics. And so, what, what I'm looking for is that not only is space-time emergent as a projection of a deep model of consciousness, but that the notion of entropic time itself emerges, and therefore evolution by natural selection, all of it will come out as a projection of a deeper theory in which perhaps there is no competition and no limited resources. The limiting resource idea, limited time, is an artifact of a projection onto a particular point of view. It's not fundamental. You don't have evolution being deterministic, though, right? If evolution is derivative of this something else, it's not, it's not an illusion that we see it the way biologists have. You're not claiming that. No, it, it'll, it'll be a probabilistic theory, and it will probably, well, what we have to do is show that a deeper theory of, of the evolution of consciousness that is non-temporal in the sense that there's no entropic time leads to entropic time leads to all of the evolution by natural selection that we know and love inside of space and time as a special case, a projection of a much deeper theory in which space and time simply are not interesting predicates. Okay, it no, goes much deeper than that. No one will, will accuse you of, uh, of, uh, of, of, of blandly supporting the status quo of, of thinking. <laughs> <laughs> go big or go home. Huh? <laughs> How does evolution in, in your way of thinking, which is much more um, uh, accepted in, in the world of, of, of science than it is represented on this, on this panel. Uh, how, how does evolution have the power, as it were, to craft or to conjure up consciousness? Um, and, and especially with your extended evolutionary synthesis, which, which broadens the, the way evolution happens. How, how can you take us very quickly through how that process can generate consciousness? Right. So, first of all, uh, again, what I'm talking about is about subjective experiencing, which, as I see it, is the property of certain living organisms, not all living organisms, by the way, but, certain, uh, but some living organisms, and it is not the property of my cup of tea or my pen or the computer. This is what I'm interested in. Now, how did this thing evolve? So, what I'm saying is that it evolved through the evolution of learning that cognition, the evolution of cognition was the driver 
of the evolution of consciousness, and that they and that consciousness subjective experiencing is constituted by by processes of cognition, certain processes of cognition, not any type of cognition, a certain or organized, uh, quite complex process, a, 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 a set of processes that are coupled of cognition in the same way, again, I'm giving this example because this makes it a little bit easier to understand, in the same way that living is constituted by process, by by chemical processes of replication, metabolism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is the organization and the coupling that creates a conscious being. Now, what is the uh, advantage of, uh, what is the selective advantage of, uh, of subjective experiencing, one might ask, and can we have all the benefits of subjective experiencing without subjective experiencing? This is a question that is asked very, very often, it is, it is the question of the function of consciousness. So the first thing that I want to say is that it is much better to think about consciousness, about the, about the goals of consciousness rather than the functions of consciousness. It is not exactly the same thing. And it is a mixture, a conceptual, a conceptual confusion that is seen very, very commonly in uh, philosophical and uh, biological uh, discussions of, uh, of consciousness. I want so to go to Consciousness has a goal. The goals of consciousness are the fulfillment of felt needs. Okay. And, and this is realized by processes, by, by process, by, if this is constituted by a set of processes that uh, enable a certain kind of learning, which involves also reinforcement systems, value systems, and so on. Okay, Michelle. Does Eva's explanation of how evolution can generate consciousness satisfy your definition of consciousness? Because you have told us that you're a physicalist at heart. Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, I would have to, I don't think so, because, you know, as Ava says, and I completely agree with her that we're talking about subjectivity and the what it's likeness of consciousness. And that is such a sort of um, incredible thing that you now have a subject to which things appear that talking about sort of cognitive processes, no matter how complicated, still looks like you're talking about a completely different kind of thing. And you're saying it gives rise to this subjectivity. And that's the sort of leap and the sort of discontinuity that James was talking about that just is a non-naturalistic jump in nature. You're just all of a sudden introducing something of an utterly different kind in subjectivity. You know, if you're talking about cognitive processes, you might be talking about the transmission of information or cause and effect. And all of that is just a completely different kind of thing than the what it's likeness that characterizes our conscious experiences. And I also do not think cups are conscious or pens are conscious. So to say that consciousness is at the fundamental level doesn't say doesn't result in the idea that everything is conscious. So I, I fully agree that pens and cups aren't conscious. Ian, what is I your? Want, I, I just want to say that this kind of argument is exactly the argument that vitalists in the beginning of the 20th century and the end of the 19th century advanced against the idea that one can explain life as a chemical, uh, as, as something that can be explained by by, by chemical organization and dynamics. Uh, uh, Ian, how do you react when you hear an evolutionary approach to the generation of consciousness? Well, um, the way I would see it is that consciousness. As I say, is is a scientific way known. It's an ontological primitive, and that what we see is that consciousness, like the universe in general, evolving. I believe the universe has a drive towards complexity, towards unfoldingness, towards the coming together of an in process of individuation and a process of um, unification. And it's this if you like, dialectic between these two elements that actually results in the universe that we inhabit. So if everything is actually in this sort of process of uh, ex making explicit the implicit and then enfolding it again in a way that David Bohm describes, then, you know, it would be surprising if consciousness itself was not actually evolving, and I believe that it is. So I think that the consciousness that is in certain things is not the same sort of consciousness that is in humans. But nonetheless, I think it is, I'm a panpsychist, so I believe it is, it has to be there, and that all things are, you know, uh, in some sense, part of consciousness, at least 
I like, when people put their, I like when people put their theories right up front so we know we know where they're coming from. So thank you for that. I got to get back to your comment about the, uh, the, the cerebellum with 40 billion Purkinje cells, uh, more cells than in the cerebrum. The cerebellum is not, not conscious because, because that, th there are things in the physical world that have uh, triggers. Uh, we see that in, in neurons, that is a certain amount of electrochemical activity, nothing happens, and suddenly there's a spike function. We see that in uh, atomic bombs, where you could have, you know, whatever the number is, 3.726 uh, pounds of plutonium, and it's just inert, it's radioactive, you add it. A, a, a zillionth of, a, 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 of, of an ounce more, and you have an explosion. So you have in the physical world discontinuities that occur. So I, how can you rule out that something like that is not happening in the, in the cerebral hemispheres, even though it's not in the cerebell, cerebellum hemispheres? Well, I would say with due respect that that's not in any way a parallel with what we're talking about with the emergence of consciousness. We can know from the constituents that are in the bomb the way in which they will combine and what will happen. But there is no way we can do the same sort of thing for matter unless matter already has some very close relation to consciousness, has consciousness at some level. And, and when Michelle says she's a physicalist, and I know Galen Strawson says he's a physicalist, I, I completely agree with all that Galen says. I just think the use of the term physicalist is slightly unusual. As long as you have, you can import consciousness into matter, then you can sort of be a physicalist. But sure, that's not that. what most people mean when they're talking about being a physicalist. I, I agree with that totally. Okay, I, I have one short question, uh, uh, which I want a short answer to, to conclude uh, our theme too. And that mm -hmm. is this. Does consciousness evolve in gradients in smooth increments, or does it consciousness evolve in discrete steps, something akin to quanta? Short answer from everyone. Uh, start with Michelle. No, I am gonna have to. I'm gonna have to defer that that answer to Ava. Okay, Ava. I think it's a very very difficult question. My tendency is to think that it is uh, that the, in evolutionary biology, what we very often see is a lot of gray areas. And also we see it in development. I mean, when we're looking at the processes, we can say, well, this, for example, uh, we, we can say, well, this stage of embryogenesis, for example, is a blastula. This stage of embryogenesis is a gastrula and so on. Sure. But in between, it's a, it's a continuous process and it's very, very mm -hmm. difficult to define. And in evolutionary biology, we, all, we also have these gray areas. So my tendency is to concentrate on the gray areas because they are very interesting. They we cannot define we we, we cannot define things. They are very very clearly, but this is to some, in some to some extent the joy of it. It's, uh, Ian, so I Ian. think it's it's I tend to think it's more it's 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 a gradual process. But I do do realize that there are threshold effects too in evolution. So one yeah. so, know too little about it. You, you have it both ways. Ian, based on your panpsychism, how would you address that question? You say you're panpsychist, but uh, uh, evolution, um, there is an evolution of consciousness. So given that, is it in discrete aspects or is consciousness a continuous function? Well, most of the evolutionary processes we know can move by quantum leaps. And so I would simply on that basis say that it quite probably could. I mean, what one's got to remember is that when one's talking in, in scientific terms about these incredibly difficult things to ponder, as Niels Bohr said, we're not actually getting at the reality itself, which we never can. What we're doing is seeing how clearly our various concepts hang together. And that, that we're trying to make sense of how our um, concepts hang together. The only thing I would say is that doesn't put me in the same camp, I think, as Donald, who seems to believe that we our perception makes no contact with anything outside this hermetically sealed box in the head. I, I don't hold that. I believe that um, everything comes out of an encounter between our consciousness and the conscious universe around us. Don, what's your approach to the, uh, based on your approach to consciousness being fundamental, uh, does that mean that it's kind of always there, but as evolution progresses, we see it progressing. Is it in smooth increments or is it akin to quantum? It, well, I, I take consciousness to be ontologically fundamental 
and I'm not a dualist. So that's all that there is. And the appearance of space and time are merely qualia within consciousness and the brain and the head are merely qualia within consciousness. So consciousness is not trapped inside the head. It creates the head as one of its simple symbols. And the evolution of consciousness on its own terms, I suspect that the projection of it into the space-time format may, discrete mathematics may be fine for that, but that, that, that consciousness on its own terms outside of space and time, we may need, um, you know, ALF1 and higher kinds of mathematics, not, not just discrete mathematics to, 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 to deal with it. So we, we know that space-time itself has a finite number of states. 10 to the minus 43 seconds and 10 to the minus 33 centimeters is as far down as you can go. So you don't, and that's not very many digits. I mean, if it was 10 to the minus 33 trillion centimeters, I'd be impressed. 10 to the minus 33, I'm not impressed at all. So oh, finite I'm, math. I'm impressed with that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so so okay. it's, it's finite in, in space and time, but consciousness on its own terms as fundamental, may, we may need all orders of infinity to okay. describe. So basically, basically what, what you're saying is that the question I pose based on your um, uh, metaphysics is kind of irrelevant, whether it's smooth or, 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 or in quantum uh, steps is, 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 is irrelevant because consciousness there is fundamental. So the question makes no sense in your metaphysics. Okay, look, I can imagine how conscious responses can be more efficient, as Eva said, than reflex-like behaviors. I agree with that, but I just still cannot imagine how everybody else says how physical mutations alone can engender the required of consciousness. So we're going to go on to theme three. Uh, will we ever provide an explanation for consciousness? I think I can almost answer the question from each of you, but I'm, I'm going to let you do it. Uh, and can we even make progress? Uh, Michelle, I want you to weigh the roles of science and philosophy in explaining consciousness. I know your position, but what weigh each one, because some say that science is the only way that we can understand it. Eva is saying that, just like the way we understand life, we'll understand consciousness. Others, of course, the rest of the panel, uh, that science is in principle self-limited. Um, you've sort of said that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that definitely uh, the latter. I, I don't think that we can explain consciousness in the sense of the origin of consciousness. It's like asking, you know, it's sort of like asking, you know, why does matter exist? You know, we got to ask God. I don't think we're going to um, answer that question. I do think we can make progress um, studying consciousness, but not necessarily by looking to science, but rather by looking to phenomenology. The, the study of conscious experience as we have it. And by studying it and paying very careful attention to how consciousness appears to us, we might make some progress in understanding its structure and develop new concepts to describe it more adequately. So in that sense, I do think we can make progress. Okay, Ian, uh, you champion the view that the humanities contribute to human understanding in ways that the sciences in principle can never do. Uh, but to defend this view, do you need consciousness to be any way non-physical? So I'm asking you to take your the position that, that you presented so uh, wonderfully in your books and, and ask whether your sense that consciousness is a, a, an ontological primitive as, as a pantheist, is that a required position in order to defend the importance of the humanities? Well, I'm not saying by reading the humanities you'll solve the problem of consciousness. No, I, don't, I don't think we can come to that at all, um, whatever we do. And there are certain things that science, I mean, love is a very real experience um, and you only know it when you've had it. But it's something that science can only refer to um, physical correlates of. Um, rather in, ineffectively, actually, um, even that. But it's not the same as knowing what love actually is. And the same is true of consciousness. It's a subjective phenomenon, and as such, it's not open to the kind of science um, that, that, that I think is being um, required. I think, it, like uh, Michelle, I think that a phenomenological approach is the only one that will get us in any way closer. But I think that actually we're as close already as we can get. Hmm. Uh, but your your view of the importance of the humanities to human understanding, um, let, let me just pose, if you were convinced that consciousness was entirely physical, that Eva with her arguments has convinced you, uh, th would that 
change your approach to the humanity. I'm trying to see if we can dissect out your approach to the humanities as, as contributing to human understanding from your sense of what consciousness is. So uh, the thought experiment, hypothetically, Eva has convinced you that consciousness is 100% physical, like life is physical. Would that affect your approach to the humanities? Well, it's a, it's a big counterfactual, but uh, it wouldn't affect my approach because in the end, what one knows about the humanities is from experience, and what one knows is that it enormously enriches one's consciousness. Without it, one one is aware of and experiences less, less rich world. So it's part of the enrichment of experience is to is to take in these elements, which which give you. If nothing else, they give you some skepticism about what science can answer. I mean, I'm a huge, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying, you know, I, I, I'm always defending science because I am a scientist and I've benefited from it all my life, but it can't answer all our questions. This is just the kind of question it can't answer. Don, you believe that science can never make progress, never, within a, a materialist, physicalist framework. But if you start with consciousness as your ontological primitive, isn't your conclusion just your premise? Uh, well, no. So with, with a theory in which consciousness is fundamental, uh, you have to have a, a specific dynamics that you write down, and you have to show how space and time, quantum field theory, general relativity, and evolution of natural selection come out as a special projection of that deeper theory. If I cannot do that, then there's no reason to take my theory seriously. So there's there are strong conditions, scientific theoretical conditions on on the claim that that consciousness is fundamental. If you cannot predict scattering amplitudes at the Large Hadron Collider, your theory should not be taken seriously. So that's what we have to do. I, I'd say you have a long, uh, long road ahead of you. Uh, Eva, well, it's going to be not before lunch. I just want to say I'm not an Neither myself nor anybody who knows any uh, any neuroscience is a naive realist. So it's not as if uh, we are not aware. It, it, its phenomenology is uh, absolutely uh, is part and parcel of the view of the, of my view and most uh, scientists that I know view of uh, what reality is. There is a very famous uh, uh, I, what, what is we cannot understand. The way that I see it is that we that consciousness occurs like most things in this world in a realm of interactions, the interactions between some aspects of the world, some as, uh, some aspects of the brain, and some aspects of receptors that we have of the body. Okay. There is a very famous there is a very famous haiku uh, by Ikkyo Sojun that says. Uh, uh, oh, green, green willow, wonderfully red flower, but I know the colors are not there. And of course the colors are not there. They are, they, they are not there independently of the brain, they are not there independently of the receptors, and they are not there independently uh, of, of, of some properties of the physical world. The third, okay. third person knowledge can be, become first person knowledge only if it, we implement it within our brains. I always conclude consciousness uh, discussions the, the same way. While I'm, I always appreciate more and more the deeper and richer issues and questions, consciousness to me is still a mystery. So thank you for watching. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit our website, ii.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, and articles from the world's leading thinkers.